We're delighted that you're here, and I hope you've got your Bible with you as we talk about things that have to do with serving God and going to heaven. History tells us about a man named Ponce de Leon who lived from 14, uh, 1474 to 1521. He was a Spanish explorer. In 1513, he led the first known European expedition to Florida. He landed on the east coast of Florida. He at some point became the first governor of Puerto Rico. The interesting thing about him is that popular culture, culture says that he was in search on this expedition for the fountain of youth that he had heard about. Some historians say that's a myth. He really didn't do that. That wasn't his goal, though he did take the journey, but he wasn't actually in search for the fountain of youth. History.com records this, that he was encouraged by the Spanish crown to discover more lands. And Ponce de Leon decided to follow the rumors that he had heard about from the local Indians about an island known as Bimini, the home of the magical spring or fountain whose waters would rejuvenate those who drank from it. And in search of this fountain of youth as well as more lands and gold, he said, Sail from Puerto Rico in March 1513. Well, was that a true story or not? I don't know. Some historians say that he was in search for the fountain of youth, and others say that was just a myth. Matters little for the point I want to make. There is a fountain that is called the Fountain of Youth in St. Augustine, Florida. And Ponce de Leon is credited with having discovered that. The waters are good and said to be beneficial, but there is no evidence that it restores youth. If you drink from it, it doesn't rejuvenate you and restore you back to your youth. So if you're old and go to St. Augustine, Florida and drink of that water, it doesn't make you young. Here's the point I want you to see. One who is searching for the fountain of youth, whether that be true or just a mythical story about that, is searching for the impossible. And though others may say it's true and that there is a fountain of youth, searching for that, you're searching for what ends up being impossible. There is no fountain that takes a person who is old and restores them back to their youth. If it were true, why, aren't all the, why are so many people old in Florida? <laughs> why aren't they restored back to their youth? Why are people in Florida dying? Why are there funeral homes in St. Augustine if there was such a thing as the fountain of youth. So here's the point I want you to see, that it is possible for someone to be searching for that which is impossible to find, but they're looking for that. And the same is true in religion. So tonight I want to talk about searching for the impossible, that there are people in religion, there's some of our religious friends, sometimes we as the people of God are searching for that which is actually impossible. And we're looking for something that can't be found like the fountain of youth. Here's the first thing I want to consider. Some are looking for salvation without the church. Those who are searching for salvation, but they want it separate and apart from the church, are like those who search for the fountain of youth. They're searching for that which is impossible. Here is a common idea. Common idea in religion is that one is saved and later they join the church if they so choose to join the church. They could be saved and never be in the church in any place. 
And so one could be saved by faith. They could never darken the door of a church building, never join a church, never be a part of a church, and they can be saved separate and apart from any church. That's a common idea in religion. And so they are searching for salvation without the church. Let's open our Bibles to some very simple text about the church of our Lord. To be in the church and to be saved are one and the same. How do I know? In Acts 2 and in verse 47, the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. Those who met the conditions for salvation in Acts 2. Verse 41, they that gladly received the word were baptized. And that same day they were added in about 3,000 souls. And those that were being saved, the Lord added to the church, verse 47 says. So those in the church and those who are saved are one and the same. Jesus only promises to save those in the body. How do I know that? Because Ephesians 5.23 says he is the savior of the body. Now, if he's the savior of those in the body and those out of the body, then he's the savior of everyone. But yet not all men are saved. Matthew chapter 7, 13 and 14. Those whom he promises to save are those that are in the body. So Christ only promises to save those in the body. While we're in the book of Ephesians, let's go to chapter 2 and in verse 16, reconciliation another term for salvation, takes place within the one body, that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross. So those that are reconciled, whether Jew or Gentiles, they're reconciled in the one body. Salvation is in the body of Christ. Let's go to Acts chapter 20 and in verse 28. The apostle Paul, in talking to the elders of the church at Ephesus, talks about how that he purchased the church with his own blood. So the church was purchased with the blood of Christ. So any benefit I get out of the blood of Christ must be obtained in being in the church or in the body of our Lord. And so I learned from that that salvation is in the church. That is, those who are saved are in the church and those in the church are those who are saved. So as our religious friends are searching for salvation without the church, they're searching for that which is impossible like one who searches for the fountain of youth. But here's the second thing. There are those who are searching for the impossible because they're searching for salvation without repentance. They're searching for salvation without repentance. That can no more be found than the fountain of youth that takes an old person and restores them back to their youth. There is a common idea about that. That one can be saved by faith, they believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, without a change of life. Many denominational concepts are, or many denominations have the concept that you are, if you believe in Christ, you are saved immediately by your faith in Christ, separate and apart from any other action. And therefore, if you don't make a change in your life, repentance, you can still be saved. Even some who believe that repentance is essential to salvation, that would include us would acknowledge sin, and I put in parentheses, maybe report the sin and continue in the same sin. We do that sometimes as Christians, that I'm, I'm practicing sin, I acknowledge I'm doing sin, I even report to others I commit sin and then continue doing the same sin. And so we're expecting then salvation without repentance, if that is our concept. Well, let's understand that repentance is a requirement for any forgiveness. What do I mean for any forgiveness? Well, what about the alien sinner, one who has never become a Christian and they're trying to become a child of God, they can't be saved without repentance. In Acts 17, 30 and 31, God commands all men everywhere to repent. 
because he's appointed a day in which you'll judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained, whereeth he be given assurance unto all men that if, in that he hath raised him from the dead. So God commands all men everywhere to repent. In Acts chapter 2, we noticed this morning that those who were becoming Christians on the first time the gospel was preached under the Great Commission, they were told to repent and be baptized for the remission of sins. They can't have the remission of sins until they repent. But what about the erring child of God, the erring Christian? We have a case in Acts chapter 8 and in verse 22 where Simon had so sinned that his soul was in danger of perishing. Peter said, your money perish with you, verse 20. So now he was told in Acts 8 and verse 22, repent therefore of this thy wickedness and pray God if perhaps the thought of your heart be forgiven you. So repentance is required for any forgiveness. But let's go a step further. If there is no change, there is no repentance. Let's notice two passages that make that connection. Let's turn first to Revelation chapter 9. Revelation chapter 9, verses 20 and 21. What I want you to notice is, when there wasn't a change, that is equated with there being no repentance. And so as, before we get to the text, if you have one who is not a Christian and they're living a life of sin, they are supposedly repenting and being baptized and they continue doing the same thing, there wasn't any repentance. For the erring child of God who has sin in their life, they acknowledge it and then continue the same thing, there is no repentance. Let's see that in verses 20 and 21. But the rest of mankind who were not killed by the plagues did not repent of the works of their hands now, what does it mean they did not repent? That they should not worship demons and idols of gold and silver and brass and stone and wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk. And they did not repent of the murders or of the sorceries or the sexual immorality and thefts. Now, back to verse 20. They did not repent that they should not worship. In other words, they were worshiping idols. They didn't repent that they should then cease worshiping the idols. So because they did not change, it was described as being no repentance. Let's go to 2 Corinthians. Another passage, it makes that same point. 2 Corinthians 12 and in verse 20 and 21. Again, watch the concept. Because there wasn't a change, there is no repentance. Paul is writing to the church at Corinth, telling them, in essence, let me paraphrase what he's going to say and then we'll watch the wording. Then he says, I'm fearful that when I come, that you will not have made the change that you need to make. Now notice what he says at verse 20. For I fear lest when I come, I should not find you as I wish, and that I shall be found by you such as you do not wish, lest there be contentions and jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, backbiting, whispering conceits and tumults, lest when I come again, my God will humble me among you, and I shall mourn for many who have sinned before and have not repented. Now, what do you mean you haven't repented? Go back to verse 20. I'm fearful that when I come, you're continuing to do the same things I have rebuked and you didn't change. But he describes that as having not repented. And so here's the concept I want you to see. If there is no change, there is no repentance. Repentance means that sin must cease and sin must stop. Let's go to Romans chapter 6. Romans 6 raises the question, since there is an abundance of grace, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Can I continue doing the same things that I used to do? And his answer is certainly not, or God forbid. In no way should we continue to practice sin. In fact, verse 4 says, we're to walk in a new and a different life. 
Verse 2 said, we're dead to sin and we're not to live any longer therein. Very similar in concept. Let's go to 1 John chapter 3 and notice that we're not to make a practice of sin. That practice or ceasing of that sin is so strong that 1 John chapter 3 describes it as if there is no sin. Now there is sin, 1 John 1 and in verse 9 or verse 8, but it's pictured as if there is no sin. Look at verse 6. Whoever abides in him does not sin. Well, chapter 1 says he does sin, though. What do you mean he doesn't sin? He's not making a practice of sin in his life. Now look at verse 9. Whosoever is born of God does not sin. What do you mean he doesn't sin? I thought chapter 1 says he does. He does commit sin from time to time, but he doesn't make a practice of sin. The concept that a one who is living in adultery can repent of that and continue in that marriage is a concept of seeking salvation without repentance. That's no more available than finding the fountain of youth. Here's another concept. Searching for the impossible. Some search for salvation without the church. Some search for salvation without repentance. Others search for salvation without faithful service. Here is a common idea. Once saved, always saved. That is a form of Calvinism, one of the basic five elements of Calvinism. Once saved, always saved. The impossibility of apostasy. That once you become a child of God, you're always a child of God. Faithfulness doesn't matter. But there is sometimes, even those among Christians who think that once I've been baptized, it matters very little how diligent I am and whether or not I ever attend or attend very much at all. My ticket is punched because I have been baptized. And so that is seeking salvation without faithful service. Let's go to Revelation 2 and in verse 10 and put it in its context. In Revelation 2 and in verse 10, Be thou faithful unto death, and I'll give thee the crown of life. That passage is telling me that faithfulness is required even to the point of death, not until the day that you die. That's not the point. We often quote it in the context of saying, Be faithful to the day that you die. So do pretty well and try to go most of the time until the day that you die. That's not the point in the context. The point in the context is you be faithful even to the point of dying. Like one of the recipients of that very letter, one of the men who was a member of the very church to which that was written was Polycarp, who was burned at the stake because of his allegiance to the Lord. Here was an example of one who was faithful to the point of death. That was required of God. Let's go to 2 Peter chapter 1 in verse 5 and then verse 10. God expects diligence. Diligence means giving it our all and giving it our best. Now in the passage, it deals with the Christian graces. 2 Peter chapter 1. There are two passages, two verses that use the same word. Look at 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 5. Look at verse 5. But for this reason, giving all diligence, not giving some or most, but giving all diligence. Give it everything you have to grow and develop in the kingdom of the Lord. Look at verse 10. Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your calling and election sure. So God expects diligence, which means giving it our best. Faithfulness is driven from a spiritual mindset. If you look at those who are diligent and faithful, and then here are some who are Christians, but they're not real diligent, and they're dilatory with reference to their service, the difference is a spiritual mindset. Look at Colossians chapter 3. Colossians is a book about our Christ. 
Christ being the heart and the center of our life. Look at verse 1. If you be raised with Christ, the force of that is since you've been raised with Christ, seek those things that are above where Christ is setting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above and not on the things of the earth. Get your mind geared towards spiritual matters. Diligence requires and is driven by a spiritual mindset. Now let me list three reasons why assembling is extremely important. Why is assembling with the saints so important? Why is that so important of this idea that I'm, once I've been baptized, it doesn't really matter how diligent or how well I attend. Why is, why is assembling extremely important? Number one is because when I assemble, God is worshipped and God is honored. Look at Ephesians chapter 5 and in verse 16. This is a passage dealing with our singing, and it talks about corporate singing, that is, we sing together. Notice in verse 19, speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. That's something that takes place in the assembly. Speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. And the same principle is found in Colossians 3 and in verse 16. And so God is worshipped and God is honored and God is praised. That much makes it important. Here's the second thing. The saints are edified. The saints are uplifted and they are edified. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. This is in the middle of the discussion of spiritual gifts. Chapters 12, 13, and 14 go together as a unit dealing with spiritual gifts. In chapter 14, he's dealing with the regulation of those spiritual gifts. And there was this concept that we could speak in tongues, even though there's not an interpreter there, because it's exciting and it's enthralling to, to be able to speak in tongues. But Paul is warning them in this passage we're about to consider that if they are not edified and built up by your actions, then it is of no value. Look at 1 Corinthians 14 beginning at verse, verse 1. He says, I'm chapter 14 now, verse 1, pursue love and desire spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. That would be the better gift. If you're pursuing a gift that you want to use, that's better than speaking in tongues. Why is that? For he who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men but to God, and no one understands him. However, in the Spirit he speaks mysteries. But he who prophesies speaks edification and exhortation and comfort to men. There is some value in that. Now look at verse 4. He who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but he who prophesies edifies the church. This is in the assembly. One who is prophesying is edifying. He's building them up spiritually. I wish that you all spoke in tongues, verse 5, but even more that you prophesied, for he who prophesies is greater than he who speaks in tongues, unless indeed he interprets that the church may receive edification. So why is assembling so extremely important? It's because the saints are built up and strengthened and edified. Here's the third thing that makes it so important. And that is, even in persecution, the Christians were expected to attend. Hebrews 10, 25, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. That's where we usually quote and end that, lop that off. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. I'm more interested in the next phrase, as the manner of some is. There was something causing these Christians to whom Hebrews is written to forsake the assembly. Either we're never told or it's never hinted at in the book historically or in the context or the persecution found in chapter 10, chapter 12. And in the historical context of the book is the reason why some were missing. That seems to be the case. So even in the midst of persecution, 
where they might be beaten for their assembling with the saints. They were expected to attend. And so here's what I'm learning from that. You can't have salvation without diligent and faithful service. If I want to have salvation, but I'm seeking it aside from faithful service, it's like looking for the fountain of youth. I'm searching for the impossible. Here's another search for something impossible. False teaching without a false teacher. False teaching without a false teacher. Here is a common concept. There are those who will agree that a teaching is wrong and to practice that which is taught is sin. Case in point, let's, before we go any further, error on divorce and remarriage. There will be those who will agree that doctrine is wrong. That doctrine is wrong. And if you practice that, you'll be in sin. But, but, the one who teaches that is not a false teacher. You see, it's the attitude of the teacher that makes the difference. If he's intending to mislead, he's a false teacher, we're told. It's been argued for the last 15 years. But if he deliberately tries to mislead, he's a false teacher. But if he unintentionally misleads because he genuinely believes this to be the truth, He's just a mistaken brother, and we can fellowship him, and, and we ignore the doctrine he's teaching. We may refute it, but we're going to ignore the doctrine that he's teaching because he's not really a false teacher. Let's go to 1 John chapter 4. There's only one passage we're going to consider on this point. That's all we need to make the point. Look at 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4 and verse 1. You are familiar with this passage where he says, Test the spirits, or try the spirits, the King James says. Whether they are of God. Now, what do you mean the spirits? You say, I don't know a spirit I need to test. I thought uh, the demons are gone. He's not talking about demons. He, Try the spirits whether they are of God. Here's why. Because many false prophets are gone out into the world. The spirits have reference to those who are teachers, claiming to be teachers of truth. The reason you need to put them to the test and try them and find out whether they're teaching the truth or not is because there are such as those that are false prophets that are gone out in the world. There are many false prophets that are gone out in the world. There are many false teachers. How do I know whether they're telling the truth? How do I know whether they're the false prophet or not? How do I know? Look at verse 6. We are of God. That's the apostles. He who knows God... Hears us, the apostles. So the one that is of God listens to the apostles, and what he teaches is in harmony with the apostles. And he who is not of God does not hear us. Now let's stop there. We're going to finish the verse, get the rest of it. Here's a simple point you need to put the teachers to the test to find out if they're false or not. How do I know? Well, if it agrees with what the apostles have revealed, they're of God. If it is not in agreement with what the apostles have revealed, is not of God. It's pretty simple. Let's go further. By this, that is that test, we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Here's how you know whether or not one's a false teacher back at verse 1. Whether he's teaching truth or error, you measure that by whether or not their teaching agrees with the revealed will of God. If it doesn't agree with the revealed will of God, it's error. And their teaching is false, and they are a false teacher. That's how I know. Now, otherwise, one who has a good attitude is not a false teacher, even though the following would be taught. Now, if this theory be true, and that has bled into 
churches of our Lord. And this is what the error I'm refuting is not from denominationalism. This is from our brethren. This is from non-institutional brethren. That has bled into the churches to the point that we, we tolerate error because the attitude is good. Well, that means one who has a good attitude is not a false teacher, even though they teach Jesus is not the Son of God. Suppose someone rise up among us and said, Jesus is not the Son of God. There were some a few years ago who began to teach Jesus gave up his divinity for 33 years. That while on earth he was not divine. Was that true? Well, no, that wasn't true. Were they false teachers? You bet they're false teachers. <laughs> What's the difference in that in teaching that Jesus is not the Son of God now? But what if he has a good attitude about that? Or what if one teaches that you're saved by faith alone? Is the doctrine false? Well, sure it is. Is he a false teacher? Well, what if his attitude's good, though? Or suppose one teaches that the world began with a big bang. It took billions of years to settle out and cool off and finally come to the world that we're in now. What if one teaches that a second marriage is scriptural? That all second marriages are scriptural. Any second marriage would be scriptural. You divorce and you marry again and it's going to be okay. You say, well, no, no, you can't practice that. And, and this is wrong and this is wrong and this is wrong. Well, then those who teach it are wrong. When we're, we're looking at a false doctrine, but it's not a false teacher that's advocating that, we're searching for the impossible. Here's another search that's impossible. Sometimes we're searching for discipline without pain. Searching for discipline without pain is like searching for the fountain of youth. We're looking for the impossible. It can't be found. Here's a common idea. The common idea is that I seek to exercise self-discipline. I want to discipline myself, but I want to do that without much sacrifice because, you see, that's kind of painful to cut out things and to sacrifice things. And furthermore, we want to train our children, but I don't want to be hard on my children. And furthermore, we want to correct sin in the church, but I don't want to withdraw and I don't want to pull back from anyone. And so we won't discipline without pain. We're searching for the impossible. Let's start with self-discipline. Let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Self-discipline involves pain. Self-discipline involves pain. If you govern yourself, self-denial means you, you say no to yourself. Self-governance means you're governing and controlling yourself. Self-control, self-denial involves pain. Without reading all of the verses, beginning at verse 24 of 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul says, do you not know that those who run in a race run well, but one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it. Everyone who competes the prize is temperate in all things. There's that temperance. What's his point? He's saying living the Christian life is likened to running a race. It's like being an athlete. Now, being an athlete means... It, you have to have self-control. That involves some pain. That involves some sacrifice. So likewise, living the Christian life is like running a race. Being an athlete, it takes self-control. It takes sacrifice. You can't have discipline without pain. Sometimes we seek to correct our children. But that's not always going to be pleasant. Proverbs 19 and in verse 18 says, Discipline your son while there is hope. This is the King James translation. And do not spare for his crying. I mean, it's going to be painful for you and for the child. So I'd like to correct my child, but I don't like the pain. I, I don't want to be hard on my child. It's going to be hard on you and it's going to be hard on the child. Foolishness 
is bound in the heart of the child, 22 and 15. But the rod, that's a switch, will drive it far from him. That's not going to be fun for the parent. That's not going to be fun for the child. Pain is involved. We can't have discipline without pain. Church discipline makes all uncomfortable. If we genuinely have love for one another, when we withdraw from someone, that makes it very uncomfortable for them, and it makes it also uncomfortable for us. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, there was a fornicator in their midst. They were to withdraw from him and have no company with him. That may involve family. That may involve, involve close associates. That may involve someone that we dearly love, and, and we're withdrawing, and we don't associate with them anymore. Very painful. And yet quite often we want to have discipline without the pain. With reference to our children, with reference to church discipline, with reference to self-denial. And we're searching for the impossible. Might as well be looking for the fountain of youth. It's going to restore your youth back. So as you get old, start looking for that fountain. You see how successful you'll be. You won't find it. You're searching for the impossible. And discipline without pain is also impossible. But here's something else. Sometimes we're searching for knowledge without study. That also is searching for the impossible. Here's a common idea. I want to know more of the Bible. I wish to have a better understanding. I, I, would, I would just love to have a good knowledge, a workable knowledge of the Bible, but I don't really want to work hard and I don't want to put time into it. How can I quickly get knowledge? I don't want to go to Bible class because that takes time that I don't have. That's where we're studying books that are difficult at times. And I don't want to even go to all the services. And, and I don't want to spend the time reading and studying hours and hours. I want to do a quick reading and spend maybe five minutes every other day reading my Bible. But I don't want to spend time and time and time studying. But I want knowledge. That's the common concept. Let's understand the Christian is to grow in knowledge. These are passages we've talked about this morning and also previously this evening. 2 Peter 1, add to your faith virtue to virtue knowledge. Remember the text? It says, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue to virtue knowledge. So I'm learning from that the Christian is to grow in knowledge. Give it all diligence, the text says. 2 Peter 3, 18, we'll come back to the context in a moment, but grow in the grace and in the knowledge of the Lord. Grow more pleasing to God. Growing in grace, but grow also in knowledge. God expects that of us. Let's go a step further. Growing in knowledge involves some things. If I'm going to grow in knowledge, here's what it involves. It means I'm learning the text in its context. That's not a cursory reading of the text. And so let's say, let's say we're studying a book like, uh, let's say Romans 9. That's a difficult chapter, wouldn't you agree? And so let's just suppose we're studying Romans chapter 9. If I'm going to grow in knowledge, that means that I'm going to understand the text in its context. And that's going to involve more than just a quick reading. Say, uh, on a Saturday night, I want to get ready for my Bible class. Let's see how many verses we've got here. We've got 33 verses. I believe I can read that in, uh, in about 10 minutes and, uh, or maybe less. And I'm going to quickly read through that, and I'm ready for my Bible class. And I'm ready now to go to Bible class. And yet I don't have a clue of the text in this context. For example, for example, here in Romans chapter 9, when he talks about so shall uh, all Israel be saved. 
What is he talking about in this, this context, that all Israel will be saved? Or what does he mean, for example, in verse, uh, um, verse 9 or verse 6, that in Isaac will your seed be called? That God chose one, but he not, did not choose the other. What's he talking about? And what is the illustration of the potter versus the clay? You see, what I'm understanding is that if I'm going to go in knowledge, I'm going to learn the text in its context. And let's go to 2 Peter chapter 3. You've heard this, this explanation many, many times. I want you to hear it again. 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter 3, beginning at verse 16, Paul said, or Peter said, Paul wrote some things that are hard to be understood. We all know that passage. Well, let's go to the next verse. Verse 6, or verse, stay in verse 16. At verse 16, now we only have three verses, 16, 17, and 18. 16 says that because they're hard to be understood, some will twist and rest and pervert them to their own destruction. In other words, they take the text out of its context to teach error. Now what's the danger of that? Look at verse 17. You therefore, beloved, since you know these things beforehand, beware lest you also fall from your own steadfastness, being led away by the error of the wicked. If you're not grounded, you could easily be influenced and led away because they take a text and they lift it out of its context. Like Romans 9, the potter and the clay to teach Calvinism. As the potter makes a vessel into honor and dishonor, then God chooses who he wants to save and chooses who he doesn't want to save. That's what the Calvinists say that passage means. You ready to answer that? Do you understand the text in its context? See, if, if we're not grounded, because here, verse 16 now, a verse is taken out of its context, we could easily be led away. What do you do about that? Look at verse 18 now. Verse 18, but, but, grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. If the problem is people are taking it out of context and they mislead me, what verse 18 is saying, learn the text in its context, and then I know when they're taking it out of its context. So when I hear a Calvinist take Romans 9, I know it's out of context. I know it's taken out of context. He's talking about God choosing the Jews and the Gentiles. He's not talking about Calvinistic concepts. Well, here's something else. Growing in knowledge involves advancing beyond the basics. You say, I want to study my Bible, but you know the basics, the first principles. Here were the Hebrews who were rebuked for not even understanding still the basics. When time you ought to be teachers, you have need that one teach you again. That would be the first principle. Now, while we're in Hebrews, let's go to the next chapter, chapter 6. He said, you, you ought to develop beyond that. You, you, you should have developed beyond that by now. Now, chapter 6. Therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, let us go on into perfection, unto maturity. Growing in knowledge means you advance beyond the basics. Here's something else. That it, means. it means learning the sense and the application. Remember how Ezra took the book and he read to the people and he and all of his cohorts gave them the sense and helped them to understand. You see, growing in knowledge means I'm going to learn the sense and the application. See, it doesn't do me any good to learn a principle if I don't know where it fits. If I don't know how it applies. Let me remind you of a passage we looked at this morning. Let's go to the book of Luke. We were in this, this in the Bible class this morning. So this is a repeat for those in the auditorium class. In Luke chapter 3, remember John preaching to bear fruits of repentance? That was his message. That was the concept. Now, if you don't understand how that applies, it don't mean anything to you. So John applied it to his, to his hearers. Remember that? 
When the people asked him, what, what shall we do then? He told them, he that has two tunics, let him give to him that has none. Who has food, let him do likewise. In other words, repentance means you're going to start showing compassion and that you care. And to the tax collectors who are dishonest, what that means is you're going to take no more than what is appointed to you. Here's how repentance fits you. So growing in knowledge means I learn the sense and I learn how that applies, how that fits where the rubber meets the road. Go to 1 Timothy chapter 4. Growing in knowledge means I'm going to read and I'm going to meditate. Till I come give attendance unto reading and the meditation, he said. I'm skipping some of those verses there between verses 13 and 15. But till I come give attendance unto reading and then he says in verse 15, meditate on these things. Growing in knowledge means I take a passage and I meditate. I think upon its application. I think what it means. I think of the message God's trying to get into my mind. That's what growing in knowledge involves. Those who know their Bible well have worked hard and studied. You look around in this crowd, and you look at sister so-and-so who knows her Bible well, and brother so-and-so who always has good Bible comments and does great at teaching Bible class. And sister so-and-so who has great comments in class. And you say, they've got great knowledge. Where'd they get that? They worked hard and they've studied. That's how they got what they have. And so when I'm seeking knowledge without study, I'm searching for the impossible. One more thing and we're through. Searching for the impossible, like searching for the fountain of youth. Those who search for a gospel that does not exclude. Searching for a gospel that does not exclude. Here's a common idea. I want to reach my friends with the gospel. But you see, they're offended at some of what we teach. There's some things they don't like about what we teach. And the things that we stand for, they're offended by that and they're bothered by that. And you see, that part of the word excludes so many. And they'll never come to the gospel. They'll never come to the Lord because that's the obstacle is right there. And so I'd like to teach a gospel that doesn't exclude and doesn't offend. You're searching for the impossible. Truth by its nature excludes, or it's not true. You say, how do you know? Look at John 17, 17. Jesus speaking to the Father in his prayer said, thy word is truth. So whatever God has revealed, the word of God, that's the truth. So truth by its nature excludes. Every child that has been to kindergarten understands two plus two is four. That's the truth. Truth by its nature excludes. And the child that says, I, I like two plus two being six. That's what I would like for it to be. I am offended by it being four. I'm sorry, truth by its nature excludes. That's just what it does. Somebody else said, no, no, I don't. I don't like four or six. I like five. Or I like three. That's what I want it to be. Well, do we have to be so insistent that two and two is four? We exclude so many people. Truth by its nature excludes. First John 4, 6. I'm not going to turn there because we've quoted that two or three times already this evening. Remember, by this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. If it agrees with the apostles, it is truth. If it disagrees with the apostles, it is error. It's excluded. Truth by its nature excludes. Here's secondly. Preaching in the New Testament often offended people. 
Would you agree with that? The preaching in the New Testament often upset people because they didn't like what it said. Since it's on our mind, let's go back to Luke 3. May I say it's on our mind because that was our Bible class this morning. Do you remember John's message in Luke chapter 3? John's message to Herod was, it is not lawful, though this part is not recorded here, but in Mark it is. But he had said to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have her as your wife. Herod didn't like that. Herodias especially didn't like that. And because of her, he had him put in prison. And because of her, he had John's head taken off. Seems to me John's message was exclusive and it offended some people. Well, there's another case. Luke chapter 4. Let's go one chapter over. This was in our Bible class this morning. Jesus' preaching was offensive. He read from Isaiah 61 and then he sat down and the people look at him and stare and he begins to say, This passage is fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, I am the fulfillment of that. I'm the fulfillment of this prophecy. What was the reaction? Look at verse 28 and 29 of Luke chapter 4. They were filled with wrath. Talking about being bothered, they were filled with wrath and carried him out and was going to throw him off a cliff. Paul's sermons were offensive. Look at Acts chapter 13, if you will. Then we'll notice one in chapter, 15, uh, chapter 14. Acts chapter 30, uh, 13, at Antioch of Pisidia, he preaches. Verse 50 says, the Jews stirred up devout and prominent women and chief men of the city and raised up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from their region. I've upset people in my preaching, but they've never expelled me from the region. You're talking about upsetting people. Paul upset. Look at chapter 14. Look at chapter 14. The Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and they came there having persecuted the multitudes and stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city supposing he was dead. They thought they'd killed him. What I'm learning from that is that preaching in the New Testament offended people. Now, when truth is proclaimed, it is going to exclude and it's going to offend. That's the nature of truth. When I teach the truth that there is a God, and I give evidence there is a God, the material universe is evidence there is a God that excludes the atheist who insists on his atheism. That excludes him. He said, but, but I just can't accept there is a God. Well, he's never going to become a part of Christianity because he's excluded by that. That's just the nature of truth. I'm not going to sacrifice that. I'm not going to say, well, no, maybe there's not a God so that I can include the atheist. I can't do that. That's the truth. There is a God. Here's another principle. God created the world. That excludes the evolutionist. That excludes the evolutionist that God created the world. So I'm offended by that. And, and I don't want to be a part of, of, of Christianity if y'all if don't believe in evolution. That just, that's the nature of God creating the world that eliminates evolution. What if I insist that Jesus is the Son of God? You know what? My Jehovah's Witness friends don't want to be a part. They say, I'm, I'm offended. I'm excluded by that. And so is the Muslim and so is the Jew. Because none of them believe Jesus is the Son of God. But I'm suppose, suppose I'm trying to teach a Jehovah's Witness and I think I've got them on the verge of obeying the gospel, but they say, I just can't swallow that Jesus is the Son of God. Can I begin to back off and say, well, maybe he's not in order to 
make it more palatable? Not at all. You see, the truth is that baptism is essential. And if I preach that truth, that excludes most of the denominationalists. That excludes most of them. And that's the nature of truth. Well, Ponce de Leon was searching, if it'd be a true story, for the fountain of youth. He found a fountain, if the story be true. He found something. He's credited with finding a fountain, saying Augustine, Florida. No evidence that what he found was what he was searching for. He was searching for the impossible. We often are searching for the impossible. When we search for salvation without the church, salvation without repentance, without faithful service, false teaching that doesn't have a false teacher, discipline without pain, knowledge without study, and a gospel that does not exclude. We are searching for the impossible. There may be one or more present who's not a Christian, who's not a child of God. Would you come tonight believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? Would you repent of your sins, acknowledge your faith, be buried in the waters of baptism for the remission of sins. If you're subject in any way, would you come while together we stand and while we sing?